0: to deny the existence of Satan or demons is scripturally untenable. Jesus clearly believed in them, taught about them, talked to them, prayed against them, judged them. The apostles wrote of them and believed in them. And the Old Testament authors were clearly inspired to write about them and even go so far as to record some of their specific historical activities. Now, I don't think anybody in here would deny that truth. But some of you, on the other hand, may struggle with a sort of evil curiosity for these things. And it concerns me when people seem to know a lot about demons because the Bible doesn't seem to know a lot about them. don't be fascinated by the darkness. These things are sickening and they're repulsive. And if you find that you like thinking about them a lot, talking about them a lot, or researching them a lot, you're in sin. God speaks through Paul in Philippians 4, 8, saying, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's a command. And Satanology and demonology could not be further from meeting those qualifications. Now that said, being knowledgeable of the devil and his schemes is essential to living a life that is pleasing to God. Ephesians 6.12 We wrestle not against blood and flesh, But we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the worldly powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens, i.e. Satan and demons. You're in a war. a war A war between the kingdom of the triune God and the kingdom of his satanic enemy. And once again, I don't think anybody in here would doubt that. So I don't need to belabor the point. But the implications of this are that if you're not fighting for God against Satan and his demons, you are fighting against Satan and his demons against God. Sorry, you're fighting for Satan and his demons against God. That's the implications of this. And Jesus echoes that truth in Matthew 12 when he says that whoever is not with me is against me. So if you're not for Christ, you're against Christ. If you don't have an accurate understanding of who the enemy is and what he does, you cannot expect to live a God-honoring life by fighting him well. Thankfully, the Bible tells us several important things about this adversary of ours, things which would otherwise mystify us, and by God's grace, we'll have a chance to survey the topic this morning. The three things I want to address on Satan and demons are who they are, what they do, and how to overcome them. So who they are, what they do, and how to overcome them. Let's look first at who they are. The scriptures attribute several descriptive names to our adversary, the devil, Originally, he was called things like the anointed cherub of heaven, the shining one, or the sun of the morning, which the King James Version renders as Lucifer. Now he is referred to as things like the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, and the god of this age. In Greek, he is called Abaddon. In Hebrew, it's the equivalent of Apollyon. Both mean destruction. You can reference that in Revelation 9. Fifty-two times he is called Satan, which means adversary. Thirty-five times he is called the devil, which means slanderer. He is known as the ancient serpent, the father of lies, the wicked one, the angel of the bottomless pit, the great dragon, and the roaring lion. John 17 designates him as the evil one, which in Greek is literally the evil, Poneros, pure evil. Satan is the personification of evil. Matthew 12 calls him Beelzebub, which either means god of dung or ruler of demons, 2 Corinthians 6, he's known as Belial, which means worthlessness. He's the tempter in Matthew 12, the accuser in Revelation 4, the ruler of the darkness of this world, and the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2. What exactly is he? Satan is a spirit being of the angelic species. Now, angels are spiritual, volitional creatures made by God, they don't have physical bodies. But they are endowed with moral faculties and high intelligence. And 2 Peter 2 tells us that angels are greater in might and power than humans are. However, angels are not omnipresent. They are not all-knowing. They are not all-powerful. And they have not always existed. Contrary to some preconceived notions you may have, angels are actually finite beings created by God that too have to travel to get places. Furthermore, the scriptures delineate the existence of various kinds of angels. One such kind is the cherubim, which are are depicted in Scripture as the royal guardians of Yahweh, protectors of His holiness, and sometimes even servants in His immediate presence. Still another kind are the seraphim, with their name being derived from the word fire and their responsibility being the perpetual proclamation of the holiness of the Lord of armies. We see them only in Isaiah 6. And still we are told that another kind of heavenly beings exist, and these are known as the living creatures. We see them described with appearances like those of lions and oxen and men and eagles which are the mightiest representatives of each created sect. They continually worship God around his throne never ceasing to sing their song of holy, holy, holy to this Lord is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And just as an aside details like these should have the right effect of suspending your mind in a sort of holy wonder that results in both a right praise of God and a fear of this living God who we worship, who dwells in the marvels of this um, invisible realm. The scriptures teach that Satan is a fallen angel, an angel who has sinned against his maker and lives at enmity with Yahweh. And from Ezekiel 28, we ascertain that he is of the cherubim kind, making him a depraved cherub. Now, I want to talk about some of his character traits before I do that, it seems necessary to deal with the foolishness of his cultural image. Just as angels are not halo headed, rosy cheeked children with white bathrobes and big feathery wings, Satan is not a red creature with horns on his head and a pointy tail. If you have such ludicrous and absurd images of the devil in your head, you need to get them out. He's not an anti hero. He isn't necessarily a rock and roll fan, though it's no doubt he does use music to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't share your shoulders with an angel. And I hope that an idiotic 19th century illustration of the so-called Baphomet or sabbatic goat doesn't come to your mind when you think of him either. And some of you know what I mean by that. I dare say, if you saw him right now, he would appear to be so dazzling and so magnificent, it would take the grace of God to restrain you from bowing down to him in worship. See how distorted the perception is? If this is your impression of the devil, you need to repent of these and forget them immediately, along with everything else that the world makes him out to be. Remember that the world is his system, and he will use it even to shape your perception of him. Base your view of our adversary on the scriptures alone. It is the only, and I don't use that word lightly, only trustworthy source concerning demonology. Don't give any credence to what former Satan worshipers have to say, or people who profess to be demon-possessed claim, or any other cultural portrayal of the devil. Put away all such falsehoods. This is a very serious issue. And to misunderstand our enemy, or to believe what he wants us to believe about them, would be a catastrophic mistake. So now putting those myths aside, let me give you a biblical portrait of our enemy. The scriptures describe him as the best of liars, and the most brilliant deceiver. He is wholeheartedly conceited, proud through and through, murderous and filled with hate. He's aggressive, he's ruthless, altogether despicable. He's an imposter and a cheater. Satan is mighty in craft. He is exceedingly powerful. His sinfulness is incomprehensible and knows no bounds. He is a master of all immoralities. He is religious when he needs to be religious. He is profane when he needs to be profane. He is blatantly villainous when he needs to be. And he always personifies the epitome of wickedness. Satan is the most formidable foe imaginable. And he's an ancient enemy. He's old. Been around since the world was made. He's the inventor of sin. The most original sinner. And he possesses every sinful attribute in existence. And he possesses them all to the fullest. He is the perfection of evil. And no greater adversary could be conceived. How did he become like this? The origins of the Satan are tragic. His story begins in the dateless past, long before you or I were born. The scriptures seem to reveal these beginnings in two places primarily, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And I say seem because there's a considerable amount of debate as to whether these passages are actually referring to the devil since neither of them explicitly state that they do. However, for reasons I don't have time to discuss right now, I believe that they are both clearly speaking of Satan. Let's look first at Ezekiel 28. Please turn there in your Bibles. Ezekiel is lamenting over the king of Tyre. But much like we saw David in 2 Samuel functioning as a type and shadow of Christ, so too does the language here elevate to such a height that somebody else is also being discussed. Let's read, starting in verse 11. This is referring to Lucifer now. And notice his most glorious estate. Verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He had unparalleled wisdom and beauty. Verse 13, You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. So stop there. He had an unparalleled habitation, a heavenly, Eden-like paradise, which was free from sin and bountiful in that which was valuable and precious. Continuing in verse 13. And crafted in your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. And crafted in gold, he possessed an unparalleled covering, a tire of gold, no doubt indicative of the glory imparted to him. Continuing in verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So we see from verse 14 that he had an unparalleled function, guarding the holiness of God as his anointed cherub, and serving him at his throne. And given that the fiery stones are likely a reference to the presence of God himself, this means that Lucifer also enjoyed Yahweh's intimate presence. Verse 15. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So verse 15 informs us that he was the perfection of righteousness. So what happened? How could Lucifer fall from so great a height? What could possibly turn him into the devil that he is now? Verse 16. In the abundance of trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. God expelled him from his presence. In verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. In other words, he became conceited by his own. Magnificence. Verse 17 continues I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitudes of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and it turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So the Lord banishes him to the earth. And then as we see in verse 19, he has a horrible end. And it is a horrible end indeed. His destiny is the fire of hell. Though he must must hate this greatest of villains, this is a a tragedy nonetheless. How gracious God was to extend redemption to mankind. He didn't do the same for angels. The specifics of Lucifer's original sin are elaborated in Isaiah 14. Turn there with me, if you will. Isaiah chapter 14. Starting in verse 12, we read, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. That's Lucifer in the King James. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. This word, how in the Hebrew, is a rhetorical question of amazement or despair, drawing particular attention to the heinous nature of the sin. And what follows in the preceding verses is often called the five I wills of Satan. Listen carefully. Verse 13 You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, the angels of God. I will sit on my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. You know what all five of his I wills have in common? The determination to be what God is. He came to believe that he was worth being more like God. This was certainly pridefully motivated, and I also think it's treachery, betraying his trust in God and trusting the lie that he should be as God is, and of course, acting in accordance with it. Notice too, is this not the same bait with which he lured us into sin? For he says in verse 14, I will make myself like the Most High. And when he was in the garden with Eve, he made the same offer to man, to be like God. And man fell for it as well. It's the most classic temptation. Viewing himself as the greatest being imaginable as God, the devil seeks the glorification of his sinful character. He is, at his heart, self-idolizing. And though he's the best of deceivers, he's also himself one of the most deceived. So there he is. That's, That's Lucifer, the morning star. The one who formerly held the high and ordained office as anointed cherub of heaven, Now the ruler of the demon world, a woefully conceited self-idolizer who stops at nothing in pursuit of his own glory. His career as the Satan began with his rebellion against Yahweh in the heavenly places. We're given a stunning revelation in the 12th chapter of the book named The Same. Starting in verse 7, we read that, "...War broke out in heaven. Michael, the archangel that is, and his angels fought against the dragon, which is Satan." And the dragon and his angels, the demons, fought back. Verse 8. But he, the devil, was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Not being strong enough to prevail against the Lord and his angelic armies, Satan and his confederate demons were cast down to our earth. The devil then taking up the form of a serpent, proceeded to conquer this world through the temptation of our forefathers, Adam and Eve. And conquered it, he did. With the fall of man into sin, Satan took possession of the whole world. This is his world. And he has since been working out his evil, self-glorifying purposes through it. Listen to this. His line of business consists of things like perverting the word of God in Matthew 4, hindering God's servants in 2 Thessalonians 2, Deceiving the nations, which specifically in the Old Testament meant keeping them in the dark so that they could not come to knowledge of the Lord, as is discussed in Daniel in the book of Isaiah. And then we find from Revelation 20 that he is balanced that he can't deceive the nations um, in that same way, so that the gospel might go out. Continuing with this, he's been snaring the wicked, First Timothy 3, opposing the work of God, Zechariah 3, restricting the proclamation of the gospel, Second Corinthians 4, fighting with Michael's and his holy angels, Revelation 12. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He tempts us to sin, First Chronicles 21. He incites wickedness. He twists the truth. He snatches the word away, as in the parable of the seed and the sower. He seeks the destruction of the church, Revelation 12. He accuses the brethren, also Revelation 12. And he contrives all sorts of false doctrines. He holds the whole world in his lap, 1 John 5. He runs this whole system. And it's most likely that he has his hands in everything sinful that occurs. Ultimately, he's determined to glorify himself through this world, his kingdom, and that purpose works itself out in countless ways. Now, as for demons, demons are simply those angels who have joined the Satan in this enterprise. And their origins as well can be traced back to his initial fall in Revelation 12. Verses 3 and 4, we read this. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, this is Satan, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars, those are angels, of heaven, and cast them to the earth. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. Now as for the number of angels that became demons, I don't think that this means that a mathematical third of all of the angels are now demons. Since the book of Revelation often uses numbers because of their symbolic significance, this probably means something more along the lines of an essential percentage of the complete number of angels fell with the devil. Either way, it's likely that more angels who remain that there are more angels who remained holy than those who actually fell. As far as quantity goes, John records this in Revelation 5.11. We read this this morning. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. 10,000 is the highest number in the Greek language. So basically what he's saying is there exists an innumerable amount of angels. It then follows that there also exists an innumerable amount of demons. What we're talking about here are supernatural, massive hordes of demon armies. And how much more colossal, then, are the angelic militaries of Yahweh? The demonic forces are incalculable and immeasurable in size. But even though it's tempting to do this when we're thinking about figures like this which far exceed our comprehension, we must not forget that each of these angels are specific and unique beings created by God, each with their own particular function. And when Lucifer became conceited by his own excellence and saw himself as most worthy of glory, he rebelled against God and myriads of angels followed suit. John describes it as the dragon's tail sweeping the angels up with him, appearing to imply that the devil was responsible for deceiving all of those that fell with him, that he swept them up so then, deceived by the newly born Satan, these angels pledged their allegiance to him and rebelled against God with him. They were banished to this planet with him, and they continued to war against Yahweh with the devil to this very day. As demons, they are evil through and through, just as he is, and they too seek the glorification of their own sinful character. And this is indeed the objective of the demonic community, seeking the glorification of the sinful form that they all have in common. While demons are all equally depraved, they have varying ranks and functions as well. The Bible reveals structure among the angelic masses, with Michael as the archangel, for example. And the same it suggests for demons. For the scriptures describe battles between Michael and his angels, and Satan and his demons, implicitly teaching that Satan is the commander-in-chief of the demonic forces. It's also probable that as angels vary in degrees of glory, so too do demons vary in degrees of magnitude and might. For some demons, the disciples were able to cast out, while others proved to be too formidable for them. Um, And along those same lines, it's likely the case that different demons have different functions, as do the holy angels in heaven. As for their history and all the things that they have done, Satan is their king, and they are like his wicked minions or henchmen. Almost everything that they see him doing, they do themselves, and oftentimes they do for him. So let's move on to the second item. What is it exactly that they do? We've looked at some of their activities so far, but how exactly do they operate? First, let me reinstate their purpose. A lot of people miss this. Their purpose is to glorify themselves. They idolize themselves. They treat themselves only as God ought to be treated, and hence they aim to glorify their character and their nature. Satan's goal... And the goal of his fellow demons is the maximization of his glorification. In other words, to glorify himself the most possible. What do I mean by that? We've talked about this several times before. Glorifying someone is not just praising that person. Praising somebody might be a way you glorify them, but that's not what glorification is. Simply put, to glorify somebody is to make that thing known. Is to reveal... And reflect that thing's character and nature. It is to mirror, to emulate, to magnify, and to model, and to be an image of what that thing is. Now hold that thought. There is nothing more pleasing to God than Himself. And that shouldn't sound offensive to you. Because there is nothing more pleasing than God. He's the most pleasing person in existence. And thus Out of our desire to please God, we want to be the most like Him because that's what most pleases Him. We seek to glorify Him in our lives. We strive to live and eat and drink and sleep in such a way that His character and nature is modeled and reflected. For He loves Himself and accurate images of Himself. Thus, that's what we strive to be. This is the very purpose for which we were created. Glorifying him, since this is what pleases him most. Conversely, what pleases Satan most is himself. There is nothing more pleasing to the demons than their own sinful form. Therefore, they endeavor to glorify their form in us. They want us to be images and reflections of their character and nature. For that is what they love most, and that is what is most pleasing to them. think about this. This eternal conflict, then, is, at its essence, a fight for glory. Because the devil's nature is the antithesis of God's nature. Both cannot be glorified by the same things. If God is glorified by something, Satan cannot be glorified by that same thing. And if Satan is glorified by something, God cannot be glorified by that same thing. While he may be glorified in his response to it, or in fact is related to it, if something is directly glorifying Satan, it cannot directly be glorifying God. In this sense, we're talking about a zero sum game a zero sum game here. What what is a loss for Satan is a win for Yahweh. And if one is honored, the other is dishonored. If one is glorified, the other is defamed. Dishonoring God and glorifying demons are just two sides of the same coin. So, as demons pursue they, their own glory, they are simultaneously pursuing the dishonor of God. Thus, we find that God and Satan are arch enemies, for their purposes could not be more opposed. And the same applies to their respective kingdoms. Those in the kingdom of God, namely his holy angels in heaven and the elect children of man, are arch enemies with those in the kingdom of Satan. His demons, And all unbelievers. In summary, what the devil and his demons do is battle with God to glorify their sinful character and nature. They want everything to reflect and model their own evil form since their own form is what is most pleasing to them. And with that understanding in mind, how do they do it? They do it through the world. The world is the means by which they accomplish their evil intentions. What is the world? No doubt you have seen this term in scripture before. When we are talking about it in this sense, it does not refer to planet earth. World comes from the Greek word cosmos, from which we get words like cosmos, but also words like cosmetic. It is defined as, quote, a harmoniously arranged, sophisticated, orderly, complex, and purposeful system. The opposite of cosmos is chaos. Satan and his spiritual forces of evil carry out their purposes by means of this elaborate system called the world. And the world is comprised of religious, social, and political arrangements, as well as all unbelievers. Every unregenerate soul is under Satan's rule, authority, and control. This is why we cannot love the world. To embrace the world is to embrace Satan. James wrote in chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, the devil and his demons invent ideologies. And these false ideologies are the true power of this world. Such doctrines of demons, as they're called in First Timothy 4, are the devil's blade of his sword. They're the engine of his system, driving everything within it to behave as it does. He has such a wide variety of deceptive lies that there is bound to be one appealing to any flesh, with some facilitating blatant, atheistic-like immorality, witchcraft, paganism, and magic, which is real, by the way, just not like the kind you see in Disney at all, while other ideologies are designed to produce a false sense of spirituality and religious righteousness. In other words, whatever your flesh wants, the blatantly wicked, or the appearance of righteousness, or anything else in between, Satan's world has an ideology fit for you. And some of his lies are closer to the truth than others. And these seem to be some of the most dangerous because they're the most deceitful. So many people claim to be Christians, but what they've really bought into is a Christless, gospel-absent, false religion contrived by demons. And these ideologies only increase increase in sophistication over time. The demonic forces get better and better at crafting deceitful philosophies, adding to the plethora of lies continually available to us. And, we might add, that we are more exposed to these ideologies than any other people in history. With the advent of media technologies, the enemy now has countless outlets for bombarding us with these destructive lies 24-7. We are besieged by this system all the time, constantly and relentlessly assaulted by the false ideologies of this world, which we know to be the skillful craftsmanship of demons. These deceptions are promoted through everything in the world. Be careful of what you watch and listen to. Don't let the world shape your beliefs and your convictions. This is his world. It's his system, and everything in it is of the devil. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the worldly powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This means that other people really aren't the enemy. Ultimately, The enemy isn't the leading proponent of homosexuality or the head of Planned Parenthood or the popular atheist writer or the newest Muslim caliph. These are more like the devil's goons or slaves. Satan and his demons are the ones orchestrating and directing all of their activities, working out their evil purposes through the citizens of their kingdom. Now, sin is the mode by which Satan is glorified. Manifestations of evil are what glorify the devil and his demons. That's why they want us to sin. Sinfulness, wickedness, and perverseness of every type reflect and reveal and model their dark character. And they're glorified by all evil, moral evil and natural evil. It's important that you understand that our flesh is the source of all our sin. Hence, no one can blame the devil for their immorality. However, demons use the world to shape our beliefs and to bring temptation to bear on our flesh. Our desires are determined by our beliefs. Whatever you believe is worth doing, that is what you desire to do. And of course, we know you will always do whatever you desire to do most. So demons strive to sabotage our minds with falsehoods. They target our beliefs, Because our beliefs determine our desires, and our desires determine our actions. And whenever we sin, whether in something we think, or say, or desire, we are not only glorifying our own sinful form, but we are glorifying the same form of Satan and his demons, which is precisely what they want. The demonic forces are also glorified through non-moral manifestations of evil. This might include things like natural disaster, or physical suffering, or even death. Anything that in some way, shape, or form reflects their destructive and perverted sinful nature. Natural phenomena are not outside their control either. We saw Satan in the book of Job cause a strong wind to rise up that knocked down the house on top of their children, killing them all. Similarly, instances of demon possession in the scripture are characterized by bizarre and disruptive behavior. Disruptive behavior. It might surprise you to know that demonization in the Bible is never depicted as the cause of somebody's sin. Instead, when demons exert an exceptionally high level of influence over a particular individual, the Bible describes things like convulsions, falling down, stretched and disjointed body movements, physical deformities, foaming at the mouth, blindness, muteness, superhuman strength, self-destructive inclinations, lunacy, nakedness, and divination. Why do you think that is? It's because they are glorified in things which are destructive and miss the mark. However, just because demons are sometimes the cause of epilepsy or bent backs doesn't mean that they always are. For we have passages like Matthew 4.24 that talk about how Christ followers quote brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. It lists these infirmities as distinct categories. Moreover, while it's evident that demonic forces are behind much more than we think, we must be very careful to make definitive assertions about their involvement in any instance outside of Scripture, since God has given us no criteria for determining things like that. The point is, demons glorify themselves through everything evil, destructive, and and wicked they attack believers and unbelievers alike demons want as many people to be unsaved as possible but even if you are saved they want you to be the most sinful possible they stop not at true churches or christian families but attempt to bring in division and false teaching and temptations to sin so as to disrupt and deter god's glorification and all this since what they want is the most sin 2 corinthians 2:11 We must not be ignorant of the schemes of the devil. Schemes are defined as large-scale systematic plans or arrangements for attaining a specific objective. The devil's scheme is basically this, to glorify himself by means of our sin. So he glorifies himself in our sin. That he incites by means of his world system which brings temptation to bear on our flesh through false ideologies. Let me repeat that. The devil's scheme is basically to glorify himself in our sin that he incites by using his world system to bring temptation to bear on our flesh through false ideologies, through deceitful falsehoods. Okay? Now, the detailed schemes of how this works out are far more complex and require a very high degree of discernment on our part. His tactics include things like cunning, and deceit, and subtlety. And we see Satan's attack through the world on everything, from the sanctity of life, to manhood, to womanhood, to parenting, to family life, to how we do things like church, and work, and education, and entertainment, and marriage, and relate to the environment, and just about everything else. If it's difficult for us to perceive this onslaught of his it's only because we ourselves are so deceived. We must be aware of his intentions and his methods lest we too succumb to his schemes. This is a very, very dangerous enemy. As Christians, we desire God to be glorified. Demons want the opposite. And they are far more powerful than us. So how are we to overcome them. Before discussing that, I also want to add that all demonic operations are totally under God's sovereignty, without exception. He's in control of all things, including Satan and demons, and as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. So with that in mind, how do we overcome them? The real answer is you can't. There is only one person who can overcome the Satan and his demons. And your only hope of victory is through him. The prophets of old foretold that the dragon slayer to come, the first promise of which we have recorded in, at the time of mankind's fall. From the day the devil conquered our world, there has been this prophecy. Listen, Genesis 3.15. Yahweh said, enmity will I set between you and the woman, between your seed and hers he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The seed in this verse is a singular noun. It refers not to you and I, but to the incarnate Son of God, the Christ. And indeed, he is the devil's ancient enemy and the devil is his. So how did Christ, the Savior, crush the serpent's head? By dying on a Roman cross and rising from the dead. What kind of strategy is that? It's a brilliant one. It's a perfect one. And not only that, it was the only one. Satan is a murderer par excellence. When he successfully murdered the Messiah at the hands of his wicked slaves, the same one who was prophesied to take his head, the devil must have thought that he'd subverted the oracles. And he would have been right. Right had Jesus stayed dead. But of course he didn't. He rose from the dead. He came back to life. And because he lives again, the devil and all of his dominions of darkness are defeated. They have lost the war. The war for glory. For when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he took the full punishment that we deserve for our sin. In so doing, God, who is perfectly just, Can forgive us for all of our sin in Christ because he punished him for them completely. And not only did he put our old self to death with Christ, but he raises us up with him as people who are as perfectly holy and blameless and righteous as he is. That is what crushed the serpent's head. On the cross, the devil struck God's heel, but the subsequent redemption lost them the war. Satan and his demons are glorified through sin. But with sin destroyed, they are defeated because they cannot be glorified apart from sin. See, our flesh is the source of sin. But with our flesh dead in Christ, demons are powerless, incapacitated, and unable to glorify themselves since their whole operation is bringing temptation to bear on our flesh through the world. Hence we read in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charges of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15, He disarmed, disabled, incapacitated the powers and authorities referring to demonic agencies and made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them on the cross. The triune God is glorified and his demonic adversaries are publicly shamed. But are they really defeated yet? Is God glorified and glorified alone in this world? Or are Satan and his demons still glorifying themselves by our sins? The scriptures answer us with a familiar already and not yet response. Yes, because of the redemption secured by Christ, the devil and all of his dominions of darkness are defeated. They cannot win. It is absolutely impossible for them to achieve complete, unobstructed self-glorification in this world because God will always be glorified in the lives of his elect. And indeed, the time is appointed and is rapidly approaching when they will no longer be able to glorify themselves here at all. Instead, they will be fairly judged and cast into the lake of fire along with all unbelievers to eternally suffer the just consequences of their sin. Jesus will come again. His kingdom will be installed unopposed by men and angels alike. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and all those who trust in Christ to save them will glorify Him and Him alone forever in his kingdom. And how much greater than the mighty devil is he who conquered him? Jesus wins, and in fact, he has already won. But yes, while it's true that the devil and his demons are already defeated, this reality has yet to be consummated. Right now, we live in their age of prosperity, where the devil and and his demons are glorifying themselves in our sin, and the world seems to only grow stronger and stronger. And so we push back the darkness. We fight for the glory of God out of our love for Him. And that with the certain victory, the victory which we know has been won, regardless of how much darker the world seems to get. So as Satan and his demons continue to fight for their glory and the minimization of God's to this very hour, they will not stop until Christ returns. They are endeavoring to make you and your family, and your church, and your world, the most sinful possible, as this is what is most pleasing to them. That entails that they not only want to retain as many unbelievers as possible, but that even if you're a believer, they want your life to be the least reflective of God's character and nature. And they're using all the forces of the world to do it. And so how are we to prevail against them? John tells us in Revelation 12, verse 11. They, being the church, triumphed over him, the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb. The saints of God overcome the dragon and his massive cosmic network of demons by the blood of Jesus. Jesus saves us from the devil's kingdom, and it's through the continual working out of that same salvation that we continue to overcome the devil and his kingdom. It's the working out of your salvation, the victory that Christ has brought us over sin. It's mortifying your flesh that is actualizing its death already achieved in Christ and growing in holiness. You know how to do this. Use the means of grace God has given us. Pursue him through scripture and prayer and community and meditation and the like. Seek his face and he will conform you to his image. These are the means that he has given us to apply the recreation of Christ to our hearts now, to put to death the old man and to raise to life the new. So know him more. For the more your old man dies, the more this world's temptations and false ideologies will lose their potency. And the less you will glorify Satan. And the more your new man that Jesus has made you is raised up, the more you will glorify God. And this is not only fulfilling your very purpose for existence, this is your sincere desire, because out of your love for God, you desire to please Him. And what is more pleasing to God than glorifying Him? Out of this, you do it because you love Him, and you love Him, of course, because He first loved you. So you're to work out this great salvation in yourself, in your families and your church and your world killing the old and establishing the new and advancing the kingdom of Yahweh which is sure to come this this is the only way we can prevail against the dragon and his demons by nothing less than the blood of God let's pray Thank you, Lord, for giving your blood to us. We can only overcome Satan and his demons through you. Please, Lord, put to death our old man. Make it a reality, the death that you accomplished on the cross. And raise up the new man in our hearts. That this world's temptations and its falsehoods might be unable to influence us so that we can glorify you and no longer glorify the Father you have saved us from. We praise you for the promise to install your kingdom and to glorify yourself and yourself alone in this world. We eagerly anticipate that day. And until then, we ask that you would strengthen us to fight our adversary with all of our might and to make the most of the time you have given us to glorify you here the most possible. It's in your name. Amen.